There is no climate crisis. What? It is a hoax. It is? It is a lie. Huh? And fossil fuels are a wonderful thing. <laughs> Party like it's 1999, dude. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nope, still isn't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. I'm sure they're all delighted to hear there is no climate crisis. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Desi Doyen, that guy at the top. Uh, who who was that? And <laughs> that was yeah. Representative Bob Good, Republican of Virginia, arguing against the uh, passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and all of the climate provisions in it. So that was not from 1999. That nope. was not from uh, 10, 20, even five years ago. No, that was from last week. Oh, my God. <sighs> This is why we need the broadcast on your public airwaves. <laughs> Indeed. I'm just saying. People uh, need to hear the facts. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, well, uh, welcome to the broadcast as the madness continues. Before we get to uh, the madness, uh, something a bit less mad in response to idiots like that guy at the top of the show, that congressman. Really, Virginia? Anyway, this is actually something a bit more encouraging and uh, actually, I think, exci- exciting. The long-awaited Tesla semi-truck, semi semi-truck, sorry, it's, the, you know, it's big honking 18-wheeler, uh, is going to start deliveries this year, according to Jeremy Johnson at Torque News. We will see if that is true. Tesla and Elon Musk uh, have been notoriously late in getting their vehicles to actual production, uh, even if, at least so far, they always do eventually get them there, even if later than initially planned. So we'll see if the Tesla Semi actually comes out this year or not, but that is the plan. Presuming they finally make it to market, as Johnson reports, there is what he describes as some staggering economics when compared to old, dirty diesel semi-trucks. 
Elon Musk, Johnson writes, has stated that the Tesla Semi will start shipping this year and that it will have uh, 500 miles of range. The first customer of the Tesla Semi is not known to the public. Some think it'll be PepsiCo uh, because they placed an order for 100 of these electric trucks. But focusing on the economics, he writes that if you look at average fuel prices and use the website for the U.S. Energy Information Administration, you can see about how much it costs for a trip for a diesel truck on a highway per gallon of diesel fuel. It ends up being about $4.99. If you use a distance of 200 miles, he says, you can do a calculation with a miles per gallon around 6. Yes, that's what the old diesel semis get, about 6 miles per gallon. Yep. And they pollute too, but anyway, proceed. And they come up with uh, about, um, he comes up with about 34 gallons of diesel used for a 200-mile trip by way of just a simple average. With some more simple math, he explains, you can take 34 gallons times $4.99, and the cost of the trip in just fuel is $169.76, so $170. This equals about 85 cents per mile. The Tesla Semi, on the other hand, which is an all-electric truck, can take that same load and move it 200 miles. But with electricity, he notes, you must think about it differently. He uses a conservative estimate to find that the cost in electricity to move that same load 200 miles would be about $28. I'm no math so, whiz, but that sounds like that's a lot less than $170. Correct. That, so a 200-mile diesel truck trip costs about $170. To, the same 200 miles in a Tesla Semi, $28. That is a huge difference, a huge, as uh, Johnson notes, a huge savings of about 83% on, uh, on what we'll call fuel costs. And the Tesla Semi will have less wear and tear on its brakes, less maintenance due to having no engine and or oil changes, along with being a source of clean energy, he wrote. And just right. a reminder yeah. that uh, fuel costs are 40 percent of inflation, so energy costs that are rising. Staggering economics indeed, uh, which might result in a very swift transition to all electric semi trucks on our highway once they become readily available. Tesla is not the only company rushing to get these things out to market. Uh, and it's why, for example, this past week, Amazon has begun delivering uh, in a number of major cities. They're doing deliveries with electric uh, delivery vans made by a company named Rivian. Similar, potentially game-changing, staggering economics uh, is at work on smaller scales, of course, when it comes to plain old electric vehicles that you or I might buy for everyday use. But it's the same math, which is just one reason why the recently signed Inflation Reduction Act, with its $370 billion to encourage such moves with incentives and rebates for the purchase of both new and used electric vehicles, along with last year's bipartisan infrastructure um, uh, infrastructure act, which is right now already beginning to stand up the nation's uh, electric uh, uh, the first time 
nation's electric vehicle charging network in all 50 states. It's why all of that is all so critical now, despite the congressman there who wants us to know there is no climate change. It is a hoax. A fossil congressman trying to support and defend the fossil fuel industry that is trying to destroy the future of human life on this planet. So, yeah, I think it would be a good idea (laughs) to strike a blow against that. So, yeah. It is all quite critical to strike that blow, no matter the uh, no matter the downsides that some rightly see in the new climate bill, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, as they call it for some reason. Uh, of course, those. Uh, <laughs> well, I just want to point yeah. out here. It's kind of cool that they yeah. call it the Inflation Reduction Act. It yeah. will eventually have a small effect on inflation, but it does require Republicans and Republican right wing media to say Inflation Reduction, reduction Act. Act. Yeah. No, they just call it the Democrats' boondoggle. <laughs> That's true. Anyway, uh, those downsides that I, 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 we have mentioned on this show before, some rightly see in that new climate bill, were necessary in order to win over coal state Senator Joe Manchin to win his vote so that any such bill could be passed at all. Well, as uh, Seth Borenstein at AP reports today, Clean energy incentives in the new spending package signed this week by President Joe Biden, a bill that passed without one single Republican vote in either chamber of Congress, where Democrats currently hold the barest of majorities in each. That bill will trim America's emissions of heat trapping gases by about 1.1 billion tons by 2030, according to a new Department of Energy analysis that is out today, 1.1 billion tons will be trimmed thanks to this new bill. The report is the first official federal calculation of the new law's effect on curbing the emissions that cause our deadly cr- climate crisis that does exist. But it syncs up fairly well with several independent analyses that were published in advance of the bill's passage. The DOE report finds that between the bill just signed and last year's infrastructure spending law, the U.S. by the end of the decade will be producing about 1.26 billion tons less carbon pollution than it would have without those new laws. That savings, as Borenstein reports, is equivalent to about the annual greenhouse gas emissions of every home in the U.S. That's pretty good. The Energy Department analysis finds that with the new law, by 2030, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions should be about 40 percent lower than 2005 levels, as both Chuck Schumer and, yes, Senator Joe Manchin had declared when they announced that they had finally reached an agreement on uh, on such a bill. Of course, that still doesn't fully meet the announced U.S. uh, targets of cutting carbon pollution between 50 and 52 percent by the end of the decade. But it's a start and it is a major one at that. I think a much better name for the bill than the Inflation Reduction Act might be the Gotta Start Somewhere Act. (laughs) That doesn't scan as well, but yes. Yeah, no, I don't know. It's pretty good. Uh, And according to uh, several independent analyses uh, and now an official government analysis, it seems to be, in fact, a a pretty good start. Bornstein notes that 40 percent reduction 
uh, that was found by the Energy Department. That's similar to earlier calculations by independent uh, research firms, including the Rhodium Group and the Climate Action Tracker. Most of the projected emissions reductions in the nearly $400 billion spending package on the climate would come in promoting clean energy, mostly solar and wind power and electric vehicles. The federal analysis said more than half of the overall projected emission drops would come in how the nation generates electricity, according to the analysis. Of course, some on the left, uh, and we have been uh, talking about this throughout, have been justifiably critical of the package's requirements that the U.S. government has to continue land uh, and uh, on land, onshore and offshore land leases for oil and gas production. If they're going to allow the same for renewable energy development like wind and solar farms. But just remember, they have to offer it. It's not required that it actually be sold or developed. They just had to put it up. And uh, there's reason to believe, especially if people realize the economics of, uh, you know, delivering uh, across the country with semi trucks that are all electric rather than fossil fuel. Well, the bottom uh, of the market could drop out for fossil fuels. We'll see. It'll take a while. But as noted, the economics are there. We've reported on this show on the Green News Report we've, that we've heard from several climate scientists and policy experts in long time climate and energy journalists that essentially giving those giveaways to the fossil fuel industry, well, that was the cost of getting any of this passed at all in a 50-50 Senate where every single Republican voted against the measure and Joe Manchin had the power to block everything with his one single vote. It's insane. It's maddening. But yes, that's how it works for now in this country. Uh, As we've also noted, the cost of this got-to-start-somewhere bill, while maddening, is also very well worth it. The new federal analysis finds the new law's provisions that call for oil and gas leasing on federal land, which I know sounds maddening, uh, on federal land and water, quote, may lead to some increase in carbon pollution, according to the analysis, but the other provisions to spur cleaner energy uh, will cut 35 tons of greenhouse gas for every new single ton of pollution from the increased oil and gas drilling that may occur. Okay, so for every, what's the numbers again? So for every uh, ton... For every one ton... ...of new uh, uh, carbon pollution that could be caused by this bill, 35 tons of greenhouse gas will actually be cut... For every one of those tons will be prevented from being released in the first place. Correct. Or cut, depending on, you know, there are certain things that are supposed to take carbon out of the air. We'll see. But in any event, that's the trade off. Yeah, we might add a ton, but we're taking 35 tons away. Sounds like a good deal to me. Outside experts, uh, notes Borenstein at uh, AP, like uh, Bill Hare of Climate Action Tracker, says the new law is a big step for the U.S., even if it's still not enough, considering that America is the biggest historic polluter and that we have done little to nothing for decades and we lag far behind efforts in Europe. 
Uh, at this point, climate scientist Gerald Meal of the National Center for Atmospheric Research, who was not a part of this uh, new study, told AP, quote, anything going in that direction, you count as a win. After so long a time of total inaction and knowing how difficult politically it is to get the country moving in a direction like this due to politics and economics and that jackass you heard at the top of the show. <laughs> yeah. No, Gerald Meal didn't say that. That, that was me. <laughs> uh, but due to the politics and the economics and all the other things involved with this issue, you can argue it's not nearly enough. But I think once you start seeing motion, you hope that we can then build on that and kind of keep the ball rolling. I imagine, um, you know, when huge companies realize that they can ship a delivery 200 miles in a semi-truck for $28 versus $170, well, things could change very quickly in this country. We'll see. I will add that uh, Jesse Jenkins, uh, he's a climate policy expert mm -hmm. at Princeton University. He said uh, this, he said uh, in the last 24 hours, he has been contacted by a leader at one of the largest companies in the world who is rethinking how they can best redeploy their efforts to keep pushing the envelope beyond their current decarbonization trajectory because of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, good. And they need to do that. And I think... Uh, and that's what he says. This is what I mean when I say our modeling likely underestimates the impact that passing this bill will have uh, you know and and i agree having and and he's not the only one a lot of people are saying the same thing they're sort of looking at that 40 percent as a minimum as a starting point yeah. uh but things are going to change in a country where we have heard folks like that jackass congressman good at the top of the show there where we have heard that sort of thinking that sort of bs day in and day out not just across you know, Fox News and, uh, you know, from Congress, but really across all of the media. It's the way, oh, we cannot survive. If we get rid of fossil fuels, we'll have black. I mean, even Marjorie Taylor Greene the other day, what was she saying? That, oh, she was well, saying that I don't want to have to do without my washing machine. At night. I don't want to have yeah. to go to bed when the sun sets. Right. It's like, no, honey, that's not how any of this works. Because if you're using solar, that just means all your power goes out as soon as the I sun know. sets. There it's is like, no way around she How actually dumb was are you? She, oh, well, <laughs> Don't we only that. have an hour, Des. I can't <laughs> go into that when it comes to Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene. But, you know, she was talking about wind and solar as if the wind, I guess that also stops at night. And I guess she's never heard of battery yeah. uh, storage. Anyway, um, these are some key points that, you know, the legitimate environmental critics of the Inflation Reduction Act need to keep in mind. You know, one, as noted, uh, it, it, it was the best that we could get for right now, given the bare majorities in the House and Senate, which has had to pass this massive landmark bill without a single vote from Republicans. And yet, even at that, it's still pretty good. $400 billion for clean energy, nothing to sneeze at, uh, even if it does allow dangerous, dirty fossil fuel production to continue in too many places. But remember, until about two weeks ago, we were going to get nothing, nothing out of this Congress. And if Democrats lose their majorities in either the House or the Senate this November, it means that we have uh, we, we would unlikely be able to get anything at, at all for at least two more years. The other thing to remember is that all of this can be made better. This doesn't have to be, and in fact can't be, the end of the road. 
So to that end, I am delighted to see the legitimate critiques from climate hawks about this bill, uh, because that will keep the pressure on to do more and hopefully make this effort better. But to make it better, and this is not a partisan issue, this is just plain math, we need to have more Democrats in the U.S. Senate which is looking more and more likely, and Democrats need to maintain their majority in the U.S. House, which still remains a much tougher climb given Republican gerrymandering and other factors that make building on the current Democratic majority in the House a much heavier lift this year than it is likely to be in the U.S. Senate. But remember, not one single Republican in either chamber voted for the largest most historic, long overdue climate bill in U.S. history over these past two weeks. All of these things that we're talking about now are made even more possible because of them. More on uh, more on all of that a bit later in Desi's latest Green News report. Yes. But again, it is this sort of reason that we cover elections so closely in this country as nothing less than the future of human civilization at this point is now on the ballot, not to mention, you know, rights and freedoms like privacy rights and reproductive freedoms this November, or as some are calling it, Rovember. And of course, the fate of American democracy itself is on the ballot with one party, yes, the Republican Party, actively working towards ending American democracy as we know it. And no, that's not an overstatement. They are looking at there'll be a Supreme Court uh, 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 case that is heard this October, which is part of the Republican attempt to give the ability to state legislatures and top state officials, secretaries of state, governors, etc., to certify a candidate for president who voters did not choose, who did not win the electoral votes, but this would allow them to award those electoral votes anyway in the next presidential election in 2024 to really whoever they want. Never mind what the voters thought, what the voters tried to do, what the voters voted for. We've underscored this before. The case is Moore v. Harper. It's coming up in October. But even before we get there, uh, yesterday we reported on um, Tuesday's primary results out of the great state of Wyoming, where Republican Liz Cheney got trounced by a Trump-backed primary opponent for the state's one single at-large U.S. House seat. But I didn't have time to mention what happened in Wyoming's Secretary of State's race. So let me make up for that right now. Trump endorsed state legislator Chuck Gray, who is, of course, a 2020 election denier. During the campaign, he promised to eliminate, quote, insecure ballot drop boxes used to commit fraud. Uh, Is he going to eliminate mailboxes, too? Why are they any less prone to absentee ballot fraud? And by the way, where is the evidence that anyone uses a drop box to commit fraud? Anyway, Chuck Gray defeated another state legislator uh, who wasn't endorsed by Trump, but frankly is not all that much less Trumpy. It is Wyoming after all. Gray uh, defeated that other candidate, Tara Nethercott, Nethercott, 
to fill the seat being vacated by Wyoming's current Secretary of State Edward Buchanan. He decided not to run for a second term, so Gray defeated Nethercott 50 to 41. A guy who wants to get rid of all the ballot boxes and believes that 2020 election was stolen. Now, sadly, no Democrat is running for the office of Secretary of State in Wyoming this year. So the winner of the Republican primary will become the state's new Secretary of State. An election denier. In advance of the 2024 presidential election. Gray is the sixth person, sixth Republican uh, that has been nominated for Secretary of State nationwide who believes or at least is dishonest and cowardly enough to pretend to believe that the 2020 election was fraudulent. It was somehow stolen from Donald Trump. Nobody can point to any actual evidence in any state to prove that Joe Biden actually lost any of those states that he was certified to have won. But they're all pretending to believe that Donald Trump won them anyway. So Gray will become the next secretary of state in Wyoming because he'll be running unopposed this November. But the other denialists nominated to become chief state election officials uh, are in Arizona, where Mark Fincham uh, is running. Michigan, Christine, Christina Caramo is running. Minnesota's Kim Crockett running. Jim Marchant in uh, Nevada. And Audrey Truejo in New Mexico. So New Mexico, Minnesota, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, all have 2020 election deniers running to be the state's chief election officials. All of those states, unlike Wyoming, where Trump won 70 percent of the vote in 2020, all of those states are critical battleground states in the 2024 election. So please pay attention. 2022's election is really, really important for 2024. Now, some good news on the uh, 2020 election denier secretary of state front. One Republican nominee who not only thinks that the um, I should, I'm sorry, I should say one Republican candidate who not only thinks the 2020 election was stolen, but actually appears to have committed election fraud herself in order to try to prove it will not be a GOP nominee for Secretary of State this year. Remember, okay, so remember, at least there's that. And there's one who won't be. Remember Tina Peters? Yes. The Mesa County, Colorado county clerk who broke into her own uh, county's secure voting systems room in the middle of the night with a couple of accomplices. After the 2020 election last year, she made unlawful copies. She broke into the room. She made unlawful copies of her own county's very sensitive election management system software. Those copies were eventually released to the public to make hacking the next election that much easier. Well, she was charged, as you may know by now, with seven felonies and three misdemeanors for those crimes. But while facing indictment, she ran for uh, the GOP nomination in Colorado to become their next secretary of state <laughs> while she was facing uh, 10 uh, criminal indictments. Thankfully, she lost that race and she lost bigly. She lost by about 14 points to the winner of the Republican nomination, someone named Pam Anderson, who will now run against the uh, incumbent Democratic secretary of state, Jenna Griswold, in Colorado. 
this Rovember. But <clears throat> not content with uh, trusting the results of the GOP statewide primary as tallied almost entirely from hand-marked paper ballots that were counted by computer scanners, Peters asked for a recount in Colorado after the computers had found that she lost in the Republican uh, primary 43 to 29 percent. Now, that's fine by me. That she demanded a recount. I know a lot of folks, you know, cited her recount request as, oh, look, it's another way. The Republicans, they're undermining American democracy because they're not trusting election results. Nobody has to trust election results. As long as Tina Peters was willing to pay for a lawful recount in Colorado, I have no problem with candidates asking for uh, such a thing. Even in contests, by the way, that there is zero evidence at all that there were problems with the voting systems or, or questions uh, about a very close count. This was not close at all. Again, she lost 43 to 29 percent and there were no reported problems. But if that's what these folks need to find a way to have confidence in our electoral system, I am fine with that. She demanded a recount. She apparently found chumps and dupes who were willing to uh, cough up some $250,000 to pay for a statewide recount, which, uh, according to uh, AP earlier this month, confirmed that the indicted Colorado County clerk who alleged voting fraud, in fact, lost the primary election that she ran in last month in her attempt to win the post of running the state's elections. The results barely changed, they report, with Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters picking up 13 more votes in the recount of the votes that were cast in the June 28 election to determine the uh, candidate, Republican candidate for Secretary of State. So she lost that election by about 90,000 votes, but she did pick up 13 in the recount. Not quite enough to change the results. <laughs> For the record, the uh, winner of the GOP primary, uh, Pam Anderson, she also picked up a few more votes. She picked up 13 votes during the recount. And a third candidate, Mike O'Donnell, he picked up 11 more votes. Some of those additional votes apparently came from 37 ballots that had been filled out and returned by voters but were not counted initially during the primary in, uh, in June. They were discovered in a bin with ballots that had been returned as undeliverable that were being prepared for storage in one county, Albert County, near uh, Denver. So when they discovered those ballots, they were opened, they were counted for the first time during the recount. However, they did not change the results of the Secretary of State's race or any other race, according to uh, the Office of Secretary of State uh, Griswold. Peters has since filed a lawsuit following the recount against Secretary of State Griswold and the state's county clerks alleging the recount was not conducted according to state law. We'll see if she's right about that. The lawsuit claims that the accuracy of randomly selected machines used to count the ballots in the recount should have been verified with a hand count before the recount began. So apparently they use the very same computers the very same machines for the uh, recount in Colorado as they did to count the initial votes rather than counting them by hand. Uh, and apparently, according to Peter's suit, 
Uh, I guess they don't even test or verify the machines with some hand counts before beginning to use those machines to, to make their count. So, frankly, that's ridiculous. I think it's always ridiculous when they use a computer to recount computer, you know, ballots that were computer tallied in the first place. Particularly in this case, by the way, in Colorado, she's going to be charged two hundred and fifty six thousand dollars for it. Most of that money, by the way, came from the uh, dupes who heard uh, Tina Peters plea for donations on the uh, criminally indicted Steve Bannon's podcast show. (laughs) So it's uh, a criminal to criminal uh, conversation. (laughs) It's the indictment hour, apparently, is what that he should call it. Anyway, so that's what happened with Tina Peters in Kansas. Colorado. I'm sorry, in Colorado. And now we move next door to Kansas. Dismayed by voters' overwhelming rejection of an amendment that would have stripped away abortion rights from the state's constitution, several anti-abortion activists on Monday this week sought a statewide hand recount. As you will recall, on August 2, in a statewide ballot referendum, Kansas voters rejected a Republican attempt to change the constitution in the state that would allow them to ban abortion in Kansas, but uh, anti-choice activists were shocked that that was rejected. They were stunned. They were heartbroken. And uh, so they wanted to seek a statewide hand count. Well, that was the plan on Monday. As it turns out, they failed to raise enough cash, $229,000, that would have been required to pay for it in all 105 counties. So they settled for nine counties instead. Melissa Leavitt, the activist who attempted to launch the first recount, and Kansas Coalition for Life Chairman Mark Geitzen, an anti-abortion ally who tried to help her raise the money for it, shelled out $119,000 on Monday for these recounts in uh, just, what did I say, seven, uh, nine, nine counties. counties. All but one of them rejected the amendment in the uh, state's primary last month. One of uh, Geitzen's credits credit cards was used to pay a whopping $118,000 for this new uh, recount gambit. Uh, that, according to the Topeka Capital Journal, even if Leavitt and Geitzen, who unsuccessfully went as far as offering his house as collateral to meet the initial $229,000 fee, Kansas Secretary of State rejected that offer. Even if they had managed to get the statewide recount they initially wanted, it wouldn't likely have done much to change the outcome of the vote. But we don't know. Opponents of the amendment, according to the computer tallied results, won a jaw dropping 165,000 more votes or 18 percentage points more than the supporters of the amendment. Uh, Leavitt has hinted that the count is uh, less about overturning the results of the vote, more about pushing the uh, baseless narrative about voter fraud. He told the Kansas Reflector, quote, we are just praying for exposure of anything that might have been nefarious and just some answers to put the voters of Kansas at peace. It's a very expensive fishing expedition. It is. But listen, it is their right. You know, if they are hoping to find something nefarious by doing this hand count, well, if they find something, great. I'd love to know about it. And if they don't find anything, also great. It means we had a clean election, and perhaps it will begin to restore at least some confidence 
in American democracy, which has been ripped away from us by years of lies by Donald Trump about a stolen election in 2020 for which there is zero evidence. And, of course, years prior to that, a whole bunch of lies from the Republican Party. It is not just Donald Trump. It is a whole bunch of liars, the same liars you heard at the top of the show, claiming that climate change is a hoax, are also out there claiming that massive voter fraud is real. They're all lies. But those lies about voter fraud, of course, from Republicans in general, that's a way to give justification to create voter suppression laws, much as uh, claiming that climate change is a hoax is a way to you know, allow fossil fuel industry to continue and to continue giving them money for their elections. But um, listen, we are at a, a crisis point in our democracy. And I hear a lot of people on on the left, a lot of Democrats, you know, making fun of these folks who are asking for these recounts. If they are willing to pay for it, if they are willing to do them by law, I think we should actually applaud it. And I'm fine with it. And we should encourage it because the mess we're dealing with now is a nightmare. And um, I'm not sure how we get out of it. But I know that uh, making fun of even, well, you can make fun of them. But, uh, <laughs> but trying to but stop Trying them. to stop, you know, even the craziest, nuttiest loons. Look, even crazy, nutty loons in America deserve to know if their elections were tallied accurately. And if they want to pay for it, lose money doing it, all right. I'm fine with that. All right, we got to get to a break here. But speaking about that liar, Donald Trump, we've got a few accountability-related uh, stories for him today. That's coming up after a break on today's broadcast as well. Of course, Desi Doyen and her Green News Report. That is all ahead. I'm Brad, and this is the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. They're doing a lot of that, aren't they? Yes, they are. Impossible to keep up with. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer for decades at Donald Trump's family business, pleaded guilty on Thursday to evading taxes on a free apartment and other perks, striking a deal with prosecutors that could make him a star witness against the company at a trial this fall, AP reports. But we will see about that, whether he's a star witness or not. Weiselberg pleaded guilty to all 15 of the charges that he faced, brought by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office last year after a years-long criminal probe. Weiselberg admitted taking in over $1.7 million worth of untaxed extras must be nice, including school tuition for his grandchildren, free rent, 
for a Manhattan apartment and lease payments for a luxury car and explicitly keeping pretty much all of it off the books. Judge Juan Manuel Mershon agreed to sentence the 75-year-old executive to just five months in New York City's Rikers Island. Although he will be eligible for release after a little more than three months if he behaves behind bars, the judge said Weiselberg will also have to pay nearly $2 million in taxes, penalties, and interest, and complete five years of probation. Although I can think of someone who won't mind at all giving uh, Alan Weiselberg that $2 million. Uh, whether that's legal, whether he can do that and not pay taxes on it, well, that's a different question. The plea bargain also requires Weiselberg to testify truthfully as a prosecution witness when the Trump Organization, which was also charged with criminal fraud at the same time as Weiselberg, when uh, the Trump Organization goes on trial in October on related charges. The company is accused of helping Weisselberg and other executives avoid income taxes by failing to report their full compensation accurately to the government. The, the company? The company is accused of that? Yeah, well, who do you suppose the company is? Trump himself is not charged in this case. The company is. That, after the previous district attorney in Manhattan, Cy Vance, convened a grand jury in order to bring criminal fraud charges against Trump himself last year. But after Vance left office at the end of last year, he was replaced by the new district attorney, Alvin Bragg, who put the brakes on the plan to indict Trump, leading to uh, the two lead investigators, two lead prosecutors who were working on the case, led them to resign in protest of Bragg's decision, even though Bragg claims that the probe is still open, that charges could still be brought against Trump. He said as much even today in his uh, statement. Bragg said that the investigation into Trump and the company is ongoing. We'll see. In the meantime, Weiselberg will remain free on bail until he is formally sentenced following the company's trial. So at least they are waiting until after the trial. Ah, so they still have some leverage over Weiselberg. Correct. In case, uh, because he will have to testify and testify truthfully. Truthfully, right, before he's formally sentenced. So if he tries to lie or if he refuses to answer any questions, remember, he can't claim the Fifth Amendment anymore. True. So, uh, but it, so if he does that, prosecutors can seek a longer uh, sentence for him. If Weiselberg fails to comply with the plea terms, prosecutors said they would seek a, quote, significant state prison sentence. And the judge warned that he could be uh, subject to the maximum punishment for the top charge, which was grand larceny. That top charge is 15 years. In court on Thursday, Weiselberg said that he understood that he could face up to 15 years in prison if he doesn't also pay back the taxes and doesn't testify truthfully at the trial for the Trump organization this fall. But as the Times report, New York Times reports, the uh, plea deal does not require Weiselberg to cooperate with the district district attorney's broader criminal investigation of Donald Trump. The company and please put those words in quotes, uh, praised Weiselberg on Thursday I bet they did. <laughs> uh, they praised him as a trusted, honorable employee who, it said, has been, quote, persecuted and threatened 
in prosecutors' never-ending politically motivated quest to get President Trump, unquote. Uh, in a statement, the company accused prosecutors of trying to pressure Weiselberg to cast aspersions on Trump. Who do you think is the company? Who do you think is writing <laughs> those quotes? Weiselberg started working for the organization in 1973 when it was run by Trump's dad, Fred. So he knows where all the bodies are buried. And yes, he still works for the company even after being indicted on 15 criminal charges because, yes, that's how the Trump organization rolls. And pleading guilty. Prosecutors alleged that the uh, company gave untaxed fringe benefits to senior executives, including Weiselberg, for 15 years. Weiselberg alone was accused of defrauding the federal government, uh, as well as state and uh, city government, out of more than $900,000 in unpaid taxes, undeserved tax refunds. Meanwhile, last week, Trump sat for a deposition in New York State Attorney General's uh, Letitia James's parallel civil investigation into allegations that Trump's company misled lenders and tax authorities about asset values. In other words, back, uh, ta uh, uh, bank tax and insurance fraud. Trump invoked his Fifth Amendment protection during that deposition more than 400 times. And in other Trump-related accountability news, a federal judge on Thursday ordered the government to propose redactions to the highly sensitive affidavit that was used to justify a search warrant that was executed by the FBI last week at Trump's Mar-a-Lago, his private home in Florida. Uh, private home and club. The judge stated that he was inclined to unseal parts of the affidavit, though reporting earlier in the day had suggested that the uh, judge had ordered it to be released, to be redacted and released. Well, not yet, apparently. He's ordered the redactions and then he will review whether it should be released or not. Ruling from the bench, federal magistrate judge Bruce Reinhardt said it was, quote, very important that the public have as much information as it can about the historic search where the FBI obtained some 11 sets, retrieved some 11 sets of stolen, highly classified documents from Trump's uh, uh, compound after more than a year of negotiations with him, after a criminal referral to the Department of Justice by the National Archives about these stolen documents. They had obtained previously some 15 boxes of material at the beginning of the year. Documents that Trump stole from the White House when he left office. Uh, and uh, during that same year and a half, Trump, uh, his attorneys back in June signed a certification that they had finally returned all of the material after they had given 10 more boxes of documents to the Department of Justice when a top DOJ official personally came to retrieve it just months ago in June. Now, Reinhardt is the judge who approved the search last week based on this affidavit after it had revealed to his satisfaction probable cause that Trump may have violated the Espionage Act, may have committed obstruction, and other federal statutes that bar the taking of government documents and or the mutilation of these classified materials. 
As we discussed in detail on our previous broadcast with national security journalist uh, Marcy Wheeler, you can download it from bradblog.com. If you missed that one, uh, the search warrant was unsealed last Friday, along with a list of documents that were retrieved from Mar-a-Lago, some of them very highly classified, as we also discussed with Marcy. The DOJ had uh, proposed, had, had previously opposed uh, the unsealing of this affidavit, uh, arguing, quote, disclosure would irreparably harm the government's ongoing criminal investigation. It would chill future cooperation by witnesses, as well as in other high-profile investigations. And yes, Marcy helped us decode that from the DOJ as well yesterday. A uh, top Justice Department lawyer, Jay Bratt, he's actually the one that went down there in June to collect those uh, 10 more boxes uh, from uh, Mar-a-Lago, which Trump said, that's the end of it. He's the chief of the Justice Department's counterintelligence section. Uh, he, he's the one who has led this particular investigation from the outset. He noted to the judge uh, in a hearing uh, about releasing the affidavit that if it were made publicly available, it could reveal the government's next investigative steps and jeopardize the safety of its witnesses at a moment when the search of Mar-a-Lago has resulted in multiple threats against federal agents and others. Bratt said, quote, there is a real concern not just for the safety of those witnesses, but to chill other witnesses who may come forward and cooperate. Under questioning by Judge Reinhardt, Bratt said the department did not want to release even a redacted version of the affidavit, arguing that it could set a poor precedent for future cases. He said it is not a practice that we endorse and certainly would object to very strongly. Nonetheless, as part of his ruling on Thursday, Judge Reinhardt Reinhardt ordered the government to send him under seal proposed redactions to the Warren affidavit by next Thursday. He said he would review the suggestions and then decide if he agreed with them. He did not set a specific date for the uh, affidavit to be released. The judge said this is going to be a considered careful process. Well, I certainly hope so. Yes, please. The uh, DOJ did not immediately respond to uh, Judge Reinhardt's ruling, but privately officials told uh, The New York Times that they were shocked by the decision. Well, obviously, Trump and Republicans want as much of that affidavit released so they can find out the names of the confidential witnesses that are possibly at Mar-a-Lago who are divulging this information so they can intimidate and go after them. And preve uh, prevent any others from coming forward. Yep. We will see what the judge does here. Uh, the judge who himself has been uh, threatened for having signed the warrant. So we... We, we shall, shall see. see. Crazy world. Uh, quick break, and we're back with Desi's crazy green news report. <laughs> That's right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. No chit-chat. Nope. I talked way too much today. Let's get to it. Our latest green news report. 
The bill I'm about to sign is not just about today, it's about tomorrow. It's about delivering progress and prosperity to American families. Inflation Reduction Act's landmark climate action is now the law of the land as... The worst drought in 1,200 years as water managers in seven states, 30 tribal nations, and Mexico fighting over every precious drop. Western states hit with unprecedented water cuts and... Science and the data leads us to now understand that we will lose 10% of our water supply by 2040. California proposes big changes amid historic drought. All of that history and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment today, courtesy of climate and energy journalist David Roberts, who tweeted recently, quote, every few minutes, I repeat to myself in a quiet voice, it's okay. Joe Manchin can't hurt you anymore. No, he can't, David. It's okay. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, very big news. We've been talking about it for weeks, months, actually years, but the U.S. has finally, finally passed and signed a major climate bill. Yes, President Biden signed the Democrats' landmark climate, health care, and tax reform bill into law on Tuesday with the largest single investment in climate action in U.S. history. $370 billion in investments to speed up the transition to clean energy and tackle climate change. Now, we should note $370 billion is a lot of money, but it is spread over 10 years. And really, we need to do a lot more. Oh, yes, it is most definitely not enough. In remarks at the signing, Biden drew a sharp contrast between Democrats and Republicans. And remember, every, every single Republican, every single one voted against tackling the climate crisis, against lowering our energy costs, against creating good-paying jobs. Not only did every Republican vote no, but on the House floor, several Republicans called climate science a hoax. (laughs) Even as Americans are suffering amid one of the hottest summers in U.S. history, last month set a new record for the hottest overnight temperatures on average, which are linked to an increase in heat deaths. And a new survey finds nearly 40 percent of U.S. farmers are plowing under their own crops and selling off cattle because of extreme drought. The bill also contains $5 billion in new funding for drought mitigation in southwestern states. Federal water managers this week announced a new round of mandatory water cuts for the seven states that rely on the Colorado River because water levels are plummeting due to the historic mega drought in the U.S. West. The urgent action protects two major dams from structural damage after states failed to reach an agreement among themselves. Starting in January, Arizona will lose one-fifth of its river allocation. Mm. Nevada, 8%. Mexico, 7%. California won't see cuts until the next phase of the drought response. The feds will implement other actions to shore up supplies in the new system while a new agreement is negotiated. So this agreement has been in place for years, but this is the first time it's actually had to be triggered? Yes. Arizona and Nevada water agencies are not happy about the cuts, and they are demanding that other 
other states, <clears throat> California, do more <laughs> to preserve the river. Hey, it's our water. We got there first. Speaking of falling water levels, a fifth set of human remains has been found in the rapidly declining Lake Mead Reservoir near Las Vegas. A fifth set of remains? Yes, even while Vegas is experiencing its wettest monsoon season in years that is flooding streets and casinos. So that ought to fill up Lake Mead a little bit, no? Not even close. In California, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom has proposed sweeping new measures to increase the state's water supply amid the mega drought. We're going to steal more water from the Colorado? The $8 billion plan calls for upgrading the state's entire water system to increase efficiency with new infrastructure for water storage and stormwater capture, groundwater management, increased recycling and reuse, and desalination plants. There's plenty of water that flows through that just flows right out that we can reuse that is high quality, safe and affordable. And so it's, again, about just being a little bit more resourceful and provide us more capacity to balance the needs as an ag state so that we're not going at each other urban versus ag. I don't know. Dick Cheney said you can't conserve your way out of a crisis. Finally, some great news. In Massachusetts, Republican Governor Charlie Baker signed a sweeping climate and energy bill into law with major provisions to boost offshore wind energy, decarbonize Boston's transit system, allow cities to ban fossil fuel appliances in new buildings, and require all new cars sold in Massachusetts to be zero emissions by 2035. Well, that's that. I guess Charlie Baker is going to have to be thrown out of the Republican Party. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Hit the road, Jack. Don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. We got it. We got to hit the road, Yes, Jack. we do. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated and an honor. Particularly, we appreciate those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other or would like to hear it again, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those folks who help us out. Uh, at bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That's it. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Now, baby, listen, baby, don't you treat me this way. Cause I'll be back on my feet someday. Don't